Hello and welcome back to Non-Essential Workers. I'm your host, Marlena. Today, I had the distinct pleasure of getting to know an individual by the name of Juno Kim. Juno is a chef, photographer, and food stylist who draws from their background in psychology, mindfulness, and trauma-informed healing to offer curated experiences and coaching services. We speak about cooking as healing, physical manifestations of trauma, and mindful eating, amongst other things. This was a super interesting talk. I think you'll like it as much as I did. If you want to learn more about Juno and see some of their amazing photography, check them out on Instagram at June0K. I'll put that in the description below. As always, feel free to rate, review, subscribe, share, and most of all, please enjoy. Well, thank you so much for um, being open to hearing from a stranger on the internet and joining me today. That's like the best part of the time we live in, right? Right? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Um, for people who don't know who you are, would you mind giving a bit of a, an introduction as to yourself and your work? Yeah, my name's Juno. Um, what can I say? My pronouns are he, they. Um, I live on the ancestral lands of the Squamish, Musqueam, and Tsleil-Waututh nations of the Coast Salish peoples. Um, yeah, I've had a I've had a bit of a journey. I uh, I became a chef in my adult life, um, and then I would say that's kind of where I I guess um, made my dent into uh, the world and and as a and as for my own career. Um, but I think that time in my life, there was a lot of things happening that didn't allow me to take care of myself the way I needed to. And so that's kind of shifted my focus away from the kitchen and more onto um, mindful experiences, as well as um, commercial photography for work. Um, and so that's kind of my two passions right now, um, commercial photography, as well as uh, not only my own personal meditation practice, but also um, seeing how I can hold space for others as well. Yeah, when I first messaged you, um, we right away discovered that we had a lot in common just in the topics you were interested in exploring today. Um, I, your Instagram caught my eye because of your beautifully plated food and photography. And I've wanted to have uh, a talented chef on for a while because to me, that is just as much artistry as music or anything else. I mean, cooking is, um, is, is a wonderful uh, creative skill and uh, such an important part of life. And then you also have this other facet to your creativity, which is the photography element. Um, so I, I was curious, how, how did you get interested and passionate about food? <laughs> so food, uh, kind of was an interesting thing that when I look back on my life, there were like key moments where I was like, oh yeah, there was totally an interest there. Um, but I never actually pursued that interest really in any great detail, even like even cooking for myself, like it wasn't something that was um, something I was, let's say, passionate about right away. Um, and so when I was going to school, I went to UBC for 
psychology and economics and sociology. And while I was studying, I was a buyer for a clothing store. And at the time I thought that this was gonna be my career. Um, and it just fell out of love with it more and more as time went on. I think one big thing that I learned in psychology was uh, money wasn't gonna buy me happiness. And, um, and so that like pursuit of like material things like fashion um, just didn't vibe with me on a level where I felt passionate about it. And so food kind of came in like the back door around that time when I was having um, some mental health issues. I think I was going through a bit of depression at the time and food was this thing that I could just like, geek out about, learn all about. And so I'd be like, you know, working at the store and then go home and read about cooking for like an hour or two every night. And um, I'd be trying to practice and cooking for my friends as much as possible. And so food kind of came in through there as it was like almost a form of escape for me from, I guess, my career and what I was doing at the time. And uh, yeah, that's how, that's how I got really deep into like the geekiness, my geeky approach to, to learning something and got to apply that to food. Okay. And what was the first kind of, how do you get started as a chef? Like what was your first move career-wise? Yeah. I mean, my, my career trajectory was definitely not, uh, not common. Um, I think I got in, it was, it was just like a perfect storm of things mixing together. A, Instagram was blowing up and that was like, kind of like, there were a couple key like growth years of Instagram where like, if you had decent content, you were going to get a following because there just wasn't much content out there, especially compared to now where every business has like a curated feed with like yeah. high level yeah. content. But back then it was super rare. And so, um, I think that caught the attention of people. I started getting a following. I have to do a big shout out to uh, Luis Valdezen. His handle is When They Find Us. And so he reached out before I even considered it uh, seriously as a career path. Um, he reached out and said he had a group of creative like designers, artists that uh, wanted to host a dinner. And he asked if I wanted to do it. And so, and at the time, like we didn't have a relationship, like that was kind of our, our introduction. We had met once in person before. And, um, and so we connected and then I said, yes, we did the event. He took incredible photos, like the best pictures of myself and my food that I've ever had taken. And then we were able to share that and that got a lot of attention. And then the rest is history. Like everything just came from that. And, and so cooking wasn't even something like I didn't want my passion to turn into my work. So I, I was kind of like trying not to do it, trying not to do it, but everything that I was doing at the time just kept pushing me closer and closer to that reality. But you're no longer doing that now, right? What yeah. was, what was kind of the stage chronologically, the stage after catering? Every year um, the business was growing, every year we were improving, but I found this pattern where I would just keep getting burnt out like every Christmas season would be our busiest season and like the lead up to that would be really busy and so we primarily focused on like activations for brands or um, experiential events um, things of that nature and so a lot of brand activations happen around that fall area um, and leading up to Christmas and then you have the holiday season and so all of that kind of like 
builds up this like burnout, which I didn't know how to handle at the time. And then I would get burnt out. And then like the beginning of the year would be a little slower. And so I'd be like burnt out, but it'd be all right. And then around March, I'd get my like footing back and then like start becoming healthier. And then the cycle would just keep going. And it got worse every year. There were, you know, unaddressed things that I had to process and integrate in my life that I didn't know how to. And I was kind of running away from those issues, um, primarily through work, primarily through busyness. Um, because at the end of the day, in a capitalistic society, like if your business is doing well, you could kind of use that as an excuse for other parts of your air, of other parts of your life not being taken care of and so mm -hmm. yeah I think that cycle kept happening and then 2017 I hit like my rock bottom where it was just you know I was I was done and at that point I I lost um I didn't know why I was doing the things I was doing I didn't know who I became like it was just a period of darkness and I guess confusion and then from that I wanted to pivot out of that and make sure I never went there again so that started a whole healing journey um, starting in around 20, mid-2018. And then um, that healing journey also gave me some data that I interpreted as uh, my time in the kitchen was done. And so that's when I left. Thankfully, I had um, commercial photography, which is something that I've always been interested in and something that I did for my own work. And so luckily, was able to pivot to that, um, which allowed me to get some space to heal um, and, and a new career uh, where I didn't have to be in the kitchen. And so, yeah, that happened. Um, end of 2019 was the last, uh, last time we did catering, which was the timing couldn't have been better for me to make yeah. it because- The universe was telling you you were making the right decision. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So now you're full-time into photography and do you do much cooking anymore or? Yeah, cooking is something now that I like uh, to do for myself. And it's also, uh, I think one of my love languages is to cook for someone. Mm, I totally. I relate to that too. That should yeah. be one of the love languages, the official ones. I mean, it combines two, right? It combines uh, quality of service. and gifts. Oh, and acts of service. Yeah. Three. And so, um, yeah, I think, I think all of that speaks uh to my love languages <laughs> yeah so i have actually had <laughs> an argument with a past partner about the fact that they were very they saw food very much as just fuel you know like get it in my mouth as much protein as possible or whatever um so that i can do my activities at the highest potential I can. And like, I get the logic of that. And I think a lot of people see food that way, but I've always seen it as so much more. And I think any, anyone that has spent so much time studying cooking and food and how it relates to culture and community and all of these things, such as yourself, probably has a similar view of, of the importance of food and, and eating together. And I was curious what your thoughts are on that. I think that's just a symptom of living in a capitalistic system, right? Like everything's transactional. Our time becomes transactional. Our food becomes transactional. And so 
everything is done for um, for a goal or to achieve something or to get somewhere. And so for me, I think that was part of my suffering was around that um, that separation and that like transactional nature of like why I did what I did in life. And so um, once I was able to start practicing um, mindfulness and studying, uh, you know, Buddhism, Taoism, Stoicism, I started to feel into that transactional nature and how like inherent it is in just the way we were brought up. Like, um, and so letting go of that and then finding how to how to do something without it needing to do anything else, like just being in the, in the direct experience of eating, for example. How did you first, you know, introduce mindful eating? Like, can you give folks who might be curious to learn more about it or try it? Can you, can you share a bit of your experience with it? Yeah. Um, mindful eating came to me like I got introduced to mindful eating just from my explorations of meditation. Um, when I was going through, when I started my healing journey, I knew that returning to mindfulness um, and meditation was something that would help me through that whole process. Um, and so I think what I started to notice was people had, including myself, a lot of resistance to meditation. And I think it, it falls back on that like tension that arises with our mm -hmm. relationship to time. So it's like, we can't be still because it, it's like ingrained in us that like we should be doing and accomplishing. And so like sitting still is just so counter to that. Mm -hmm. And so um, I noticed that there was a certain point in my practice where I got over that resistance. And it wasn't until I really felt into um, that non-dual awareness, which is like removing the separation between the subject and the observer. Mm -hmm. And so in that collapsing, I felt, I guess like the, the inherent positive feelings that you can feel. And if it's not something that, if that's not the default state you're in, when you experience it, it's like, oh, this feels really good. And it just, it's the feeling of just being really connected to yourself and, and being centered and grounded and peaceful, equanimous. And when I felt that meditation became really easy because it was like inherently pleasurable. But in the beginning, when, it, when you don't know how to go there specifically, you could be resting in the tension and resisting the tension that's coming out because you're not doing anything and getting anything done. And so mm -hmm. what I noticed was um, eating could be a really like a way to like get around that because you're keeping the mind busy it feels like you're doing something so you're not sitting mm. there like building tension in your body um trying to like force yourself to meditate and so that's when i started to view mindful eating as a really great offering to help people connect on a deeper level and i think for myself eating has been something that know what word I want to use I've had challenges with eating like there were parts of my life where I used food as an escape especially during my time as a chef like um and that escape via pleasure is something that can become problematic um if it's overused which is something mm -hmm. that I I had um 
and so mindful eating kind of brought me back to that to like face that um that relationship and really make really integrated in a way where it served me and there wasn't so much friction and resistance around it it just it could flow naturally and and I could really listen to my body to inform me of what I should be eating when I should be eating etc and not so much like my emotions Mm -hmm. Um, and so I think mindful eating is super powerful on that level where it's like a gateway to yourself Um, you can examine relationships you have to time to food um, also to like your nervous system because I think one part of mindful eating is like going into it with the intention of like your whole being is all about in that moment, eating and receiving this nourishment. And so through that process of really being with it, it, it starts to build a a relationship that you can then take learnings from to how you relate to everything else in your life. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the things I hear you saying is that it's a good, it's almost, it's a good first step to practicing meditation because it's an inherently, well, for most of us, it's a pleasurable experience, especially if it's something um, tasty. And it also gives your mind something to focus on as opposed to a lot of uh, meditation instruction, which focuses a lot on emptying the mind and not having anything there. And that can be really challenging um, for some people. So I think having something to focus on um, is also probably super helpful. Yeah, and I think it's always good in like complementary because I think that emptiness practice is quite important in yeah. mindfulness journey. I think a lot comes from that space. Um, but if you can't, you know, sit still enough to get to that space, there's no reason to, you know, be like that's the only way. Like there are many other ways to find um, access to deeper parts of ourselves. And so I think everything being complimentary is a great way to approach it. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a cool concept because it shows that there are so many mindfulness exercises that one can do throughout the day. Um, you know, let's see, say someone, I think everyone has time to do like a 10 minute sit, but even if they're feeling, you know, super hectic, or maybe that feels overwhelming one day, this is something that they can do as they're doing their other activities. Not to make this sound like you have to be productive with meditation. <laughs> Had a little bit of that capitalist thing creep in there. Um, but you know what I mean? Like, it's so cool to be able to do these little, it, it feels less overwhelming if you're like, oh, I'm gonna mindfully brush my teeth tonight and that's gonna be my, my exercise for the day, you know? Mm-hmm. Do you wanna talk a bit more about uh, the mental health stuff you you mentioned, like kind of what happened in 2017 and how you were able to pivot from that? Yeah, for sure. I think um, most of my cooking career was marked with um, lots of anxiety throughout all of it and then bouts of depression sprinkled throughout. And that's something I've had like throughout my life and you know, when you're looking at how to help fix that, there's a lot of information out there. Um, But I think the thing that was missing in most of the information I came across 
was that most of the information I came across was trying to deal with the symptoms. It's like, oh, like, you know, when you're going through this kind of stuff, this tends to happen. So then you do this to counteract that and you do this to counteract that. But nothing was really figuring out like how to get to the core of the issue, like to explore what the core of the issue really was and then how to process that. And so when I began my healing journey, I think I saw maybe eight different practitioners of all sorts. Like I went to go see a physician, um, chiropractor, uh, acupuncturist, masseuse, um, physio, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, um, and looking back at all of these explorations of what was, cause I think, I think I figured out early on that most of my physical symptoms was coming from my mental health issues. Mm-hmm. And so I was trying to figure out what it was. And I went to all these, um, you know, experts in their field and only a handful of them really knew, looking back, really knew what the core issue was, which is something that's not really talked about um, in mainstream culture. I mean, it, it, it is talked about like trauma is the thing I'm referring to. And trauma is referred in a lot in like the colloquial sense of like, oh, that's traumatic. And so most people's definition, I think, or at least mine was, trauma was something external that happened to you. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until I started reading Dr. Gabor Mate's work that he defines trauma as something internal, not external. Because mm-hmm. the external thing, many people can experience the same external trauma and process it in completely different ways. Like some people might thrive off of it. It might be a learning opportunity for them. Some people might have like a net zero effect. And then some people it might be debilitating for them. And it's something that they'll feel the effects of for uh, the rest of their lives. And so when I heard the definition where it was something internal that happened to you and that internal happening is a disconnect to yourself in some way, disconnecting to a part of yourself, um, that exploration was really fruitful for me because I didn't realize that all these things I was trying to change about myself, like, you know, figuring out how to get rid of my addictive personality, um, how to rehab from the addictions I held at the time, um, my depression, my anxiety, all of these things I thought were just like different issues that I had to address separately without realizing that all of them actually just came from unprocessed, unintegrated trauma. And that is when I really started to make a lot of headway in my healing is realizing that um, I could just focus on learning how to explore and how to release traumas. And that alone kind of helped fix everything. The first person who really figured out what was happening was my masseuse. And um, she had a trauma-informed practice. And so all of a sudden she could tell just from the way my muscles would react to her, um, her touch that uh, there was trauma that was unresolved in me. And I think, I think most people have trauma. And so um, most of these practitioners don't even say trauma-informed anymore. They say human-informed. Um, mm-hmm. As much as we like to think that, you know, we're perfect and we don't have these traumas that are unprocessed and there's nothing wrong with us. Um, I think you can see in society right now, like the collective trauma we all hold and it's been passed down to us intergenerationally. Um, and then having trauma kind of 
debilitates you from processing new traumas. So then all of a sudden we're walking around collecting more and more and more traumas. Mm. Uh, and so it was in that exploration of like how to let it go, which thankfully I had some of those experts and I didn't know what I was looking for at the time. So this just happened by fluke, but it was like a third of the people I went to go see were uh, trauma informed and they were able to kind of guide me towards where I needed to go to, to find my own healing. And I think that is really challenging because the way we were raised, we believed that prescriptions would fix everything. So like, if there's something wrong with you, you go to a doctor, they'll figure out what's wrong with you and then they'll give you medicine, you take the medicine and you're good. But it's like, I'm seeing a pattern with like myself, my friends, um, people I'm reading about. And it's like, all these things are coming up and like depression, um, skin issues, digestion issues, mm-hmm. all these things that aren't like, oh, you have a disease and you have, you know, this is the treatment, but it's like, oh, like you have these things that you're not feeling well, you're not thriving, um, but that's just life. And, and that's kind of where they stop. And exploring the, the trauma all of a sudden taps you into why you're disconnected from certain parts of yourself. And so part of that exploration made me realize that I was physically disconnected from my spine. I was disconnected to my extremities and disconnected to um, a lot of muscular, a lot of musculature that is central to a good ecology of breath, like a really nourishing breath pattern. And so, you know, looking back, I was moving through life and having all these like anxiety and depression issues, but really they were just me holding my breath a certain way when something that I found mentally either challenging or something that I didn't like about the world and I wanted it to be different. And so I'd have this like tension in my body and then all of a sudden my breath gets dysregulated and then my nervous system gets dysregulated. And then I'm in a place where I'm like tense and my nervous system's activated and I'm like freezing up and having like a panic attack and not think, not knowing that I'm having a panic attack because I'm not like hyperventilating. I'm just literally like there, like, and so mm-hmm. if you saw me, you probably wouldn't think there was anything going on, but deep inside, I'm just like suffering. Mm-hmm. And, and so that exploration then tied me into how important our breath is for feeling good for our mental health and how easy it is and how common it is in this day and age for people to not be connected to their breath in a way that is nourishing. I'm curious, uh, what does, does food and, or, and, or eating or cooking, does that, does any of that play a role in the healing process for you? Hmm. Like in terms of, do you use any foods as healthy kind of healing tools or is cooking a healing thing for you? Yeah. There's a few things I can mention on that. Um, First is that when I was really busy with cooking, I would never cook for myself. Like I sometimes have the leftovers from our events. Um, But other than that, like I'd be ordering out, eating out all the time. Um, And eating out is is great. Like it's a really social activity. It could bring us together, create community, and it's a beautiful experience. Um, but if you're eating up all the time, I think it, it just gets to a point where your diet skewed a particular way and it's not mm-hmm. in a way that serves your well-being. And so uh, when I went to go see a naturopathic doctor, um, he started to really focus on my digestion because I was having some digestion issues. And then from that, 
um, he got me to basically get off all um, FODMAPs, which are things that ferment in your gut so that we could reset our, my gut uh, microbiome. Yeah. I was curious about that. Cause that's so connected to emotional well-being, right? The gut. Yeah. Yeah. The brain link barrier, um, that connection. And so that diet made it so that I couldn't eat out anywhere. <laughs> like literally like garlic and onions was on the list. And so oh, really, that's really strict. Okay. Yeah. Super strict. Um, zero dairy. Like I couldn't eat like half the fruits in existence. <laughs> and it was just like a temporary measure just to reset that gut. Right. And so through that experience, I had to cook for myself because no one else was going to make the food I, I could eat. Um, and I think that was really good on a couple different levels. Like one, it brought me back to a practice that actually I developed a lot of trauma around. Like it was actually really difficult and challenging for me to um, cook at times because I, my nervous system would just be so activated. And so returning to that um, without the transactional nature again, um, mm -hmm. that really helped uh, not only heal my gut because of the, the, um, the temporary diet I was on, but also uh, revisiting a relationship that came from love and passion and then deteriorated into like a must, like a necessity that I had to do, not because I wanted to do it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there was that aspect. Um, and then as my digestion started getting healed, which wasn't so much about what I was eating, it was how I was eating. <laughs> And so going back to that mindfulness thing um, with mindful eating, like it was really about how I was eating and how I was holding my body. Um, and, and so that exploration was really fruitful. And then after um, starting around COVID, I started to drink matcha. My meditation teachers, um, Rev Kyoto, Angel Williams. Um, and uh, yeah, the she has a really beautiful um, love for tea that's like really infectious. And, and through that inspiration, I started discovering uh, a deep, deep love for matcha, especially mm -hmm. around the ritual of it, like having it after our group sits every day, having it around the same time. And then it's kind of um, like more than most other teas, it's very interactive and not only interactive in the sense of like you putting something into creation, but also a reflection back onto you. And so the whisking part, for example, if you're doing it mindfully, you can sense like you want to basically use the minimum amount of effort possible. Mm. And so you just want to use your wrist and kind of whisk it in like W's and M motions. And what I noticed was when I first started doing it, my whole arm would be tense and like my legs would be tense. Like my back would be tense and I'd be like straining to like do this small movement mm -hmm. and realizing there was so much waste of energy going through the system. And I would learn later on that had a lot to do with my traumas and my breathing patterns and my holding patterns, like how I hold myself up, my posture. Mm -hmm. um, and so working on that every day, all of a sudden you get this like connection into like how, tense your body is in that moment and the pattern of tension and that's really valuable information on a healing journey if you do it you know five times you'll notice you might notice a few things but if you do it every day for a year all of a sudden you have this like constancy so then anything that isn't constant 
the variables, they start to show themselves. They start to like appear in your awareness. And you're like, oh, there's that thing. Like when I hold my whisk a certain way, like that creates all this tension. But if I just shift this and then like center myself, root into the ground with my feet, feeling my connection to the ground and then allowing that energy to um, naturally come up and finding the, the natural balance. So I found that I would be like, really like trying to do things whenever I did something instead of just finding the natural balance of that context. And so mm -hmm. sitting posture is where I um, really see that where it's like when you come back over and over and you have a daily practice of sitting down on the cushion, you can start to see like your holding patterns and like how you hold yourself when you're in, in a seated position and finding that natural balance where you're allowing gravity and your body's design specifically your spine just allowing everything to align on its own in like this natural harmony mm -hmm. that's where we thrive because there's so much more spaciousness and expansiveness for everything to unfold naturally whereas before everything I did was like controlled and forced and like with with force and so in that interaction there's a lot of contraction a lot of tension and a lot of tunnel vision um, and so yeah I think going back to like mindful uh, eating mindful drinking doing anything mindfully where you're really connected to the thing that you're doing I think that provides you with so much data and even if you're not really like even if you're just experiencing in the moment like the moment itself is is so it's like, it's all I need. It's all I ever needed. I didn't have to seek other things. I could just be in that moment with that thing and be in bliss. Mm -hmm. One of my favorite quotes ever, everything you need, you already have. Yeah. <laughs> I love that so much. It just makes me instantly deflate in a little, in a good way, just a little bit of a, one of my favorite concepts in Buddhism is the Buddha nature, right? Like this idea that we all have that. And then yeah. we're just, it's like this gold stone that's just been kind of disguised by a lot of other shit that doesn't need to be there. And that we're just kind of little archaeologists every yeah. day, just kind of trying to find the gold stone. Totally. Yeah. yeah. I think about it. I think about like a mindfulness journey, like um, having a bonsai tree. And so when mm -hmm. you get a bonsai tree and let's say it's one that's not been previously shaped, like um, first you make sure that the roots are healthy and um, you check the, the overall health of the plant. And so you like discard anything that it doesn't need anymore. Any like leaves that um, aren't flourishing, like those are still sapping away energy, right? There's a intentional shaping that happens. And so I, I liken that to the meditation practice because you know, our traumas are what we come to the cushion with. Like we come as a collection of these beliefs, traumas, associations, patterns, uh, ways of being. And then you show up and then you just like sit there in solitude. And so you're starting to see like what, what is really stable and like there because it needs to be and what's actually just like kind of shaky. And so you start, you know, taking off the, the things that don't serve you that you don't need uh, don't need to hold on to and so there's a bit of like that shedding process and then you figure out like what are the conditions for me to just be in this moment with equanimity and and clarity calm and peace mm -hmm.
Well, that's so nice. Uh, well, I want to thank you so much. I don't want to take up too much of your time today. That was a really lovely conversation. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for um, answering my message and for joining me today. Yeah, my pleasure. I yeah. think if there's one thing I would say is that, you know, we're doing, everyone's doing as, as best as they can. And maybe that's not, um, maybe that's not enough for you, like externally, but at the end of the day, like, all we can do is just keep striving to make the world a better place to love one another. And I think the best way to do that is to explore the self on a deep level. Um, and I think there's a big fear around that, like people aren't going to be happy what they find. And there's a layer to that. Like you're, you're going to notice things that you're like, oh shit, like that's there. Um, Yikes. But, yeah. yeah, I, well, it's also a lot easier to play the blame game and like look outwards than it is to come in and then there's a big culture a big culture now with um yeah calling people out blaming people um looking outward and instead of like what can I do you know as you say to make the world a better place what can I do and it's not to say that we can't be active externally as well but sure. it's it all starts in here as you said so I think the the big thing is like we use shame a lot to try to create change and yeah. it creates tension and I don't know about you but when I'm tense like I don't want to change my perspective I don't want to change my belief system like I don't want to listen to you I want to do actually I want to double down and like dig deeper into my own beliefs if I feel tension and so a gentle, yeah and so a gentle invitation like even if someone's saying vile things to you creating that shame makes you feel good in that moment because it, it creates that separation from you and that person. But another invitation could be to explore how you can work with other people's tensions. And like, if you disarm them and you create expansiveness in their moment, then all of a sudden they're so much more open to hear your perspective and to hear um, a differing set of opinions. And so I think if we can lead with compassion instead of shame, I think that will help. I think that could possibly maybe help the world become slightly better than it was yesterday. I 1000 million percent agree. Yes. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks yeah. for having me. Yeah, of course. Da 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 da